Wait, 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 wait. I'm wait. already recording. Okay. Or fuck it, we'll do it live. Welcome back, everybody, to episode number eleven of the Roses and Rendering podcast. I am your host, Jimmy Hackett. With me, as always, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. Joseph Stanford. Joseph Stanford wearing a beanie, a little warm, perhaps, but he's going to keep it on the whole episode. That was our deal that we're making right now. That's right. Cold outside, but hot inside. So we, we have a couple of things for today's episode. Um, I have some prepared remarks that I, that I will make. I don't have a, a written piece like I normally do. Um, I, I do have one, but I will be posting that to the website rather than reading it on here. Um, my, my, uh, my notes for today should be more than sufficient uh, for the time that we normally allot for these episodes, but we do encourage you to go to the website. We, we post content on there weekly. Again, the website is www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Also follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. And if you're not, you should also be following Joseph Stanford, who is, uh, Joe, if you want to give out your social media accounts, now would be a good time to do so. Oh, that's right. You can find me on Instagram, Jose for underscores Cuervo put good stuff up there all the time Good stuff on there as well and and the occasional post on instagram as well um and then also we'll note that we started doing this last week and we'll do this this week as well we are recording these now with video and so also check out our youtube channel roses and rhetoric you'll see episode number 10 from last week's been posted up there and episode number number 11 this week will be posted on there as well hopefully we'll get both of those up there tonight but if not then for sure by the weekend so joe I have an interesting topic today that I, that I think you will enjoy. Um, it's a nice bridge of kind of some, some things we've been talking about for the, uh, really, I would say for every episode. Um, but before diving into this, uh, I wanted to pass it over to you to open us up with uh, your, your uh, article or your, or your piece for today's episode. That's right. Thank you. So I have a mystery piece for today. Um, I don't want to describe what it is until after I read it. And uh, I'm not sure it's the greatest idea for me to read it, but you know what? This is just how much I care about you, the listener, and now you, the viewer, for those of you watching on YouTube. Long time, first time. Long time, first time. So without further ado, here it goes. Dear Joseph, you may find this email only irksome or dramatic. I debated saying anything at all, but ultimately, I need to say something to have closure for myself. There are many ways it can be phrased, all of which you may take offensively. I apologize if that is the case. We can't be friends, not because I hate you or don't care about you, but because our relationship has been an unhealthy one for a me for a long time. You alone do not hold the blame for that and I desire no retribution or revenge. But I can't grow when we are still making podcast episodes together and you're asking me to be your buddy when you're home. It feels like we're trying to revive the friendship we used to have. That's not possible. I'm afraid. I think we've tried enough to prove it. I don't know if you need this, but I have forgiven you. I sincerely wish you the best and more importantly, happiness. Here's how I wrote the ending to our story. New relationships have blossomed in my life 
and we are both no longer the Nick or Kenzie described in this account. We were, we, when we are in the same room or when his name appears on my phone, I no longer feel on the verge of shattering. It will always be sad we aren't the friends we once were. It is sad I won't meet his future partner or children. It is sad I won't watch him grow old. It is sad I won't get to marvel at the person he grows into. It will always be a sad thing, but I am not sad about it anymore. I have mourned it slowly and painstakingly, but I have mourned it and let it go. He is not my enemy. We were kids. We were kids together. And for that, I will always be grateful. Kenzie. So, Hell of a mystery piece when you give the name out twice. <laughs> Hell of a mystery. Yeah, hell of a mystery. And, and uh, just right off the bat there, before I start digging into this and get your uh, take on it, mm -hmm. um, I, I did feel comfortable sharing this in this public forum because... Because why stop now? Because why stop now? Amen. No, plus, yeah, it was sent to me. And it was in my inbox, which obviously Google's already reading. So, uh, yeah, I think that it's fair for me to be able to read this. And I did. So right off the, right off the bat, though, I want to I wanna see how that came off to you, what your take on was on it. And, uh, yeah, just some high-level thoughts from your side. High, high-level. Well, let's start with... The obvious, it sounds like uh, if she's talking about an ending, it sounds like she has completed at least a draft of uh, the piece that she told us about on the episode number two, I guess it was, of Roses of Rhetoric, where, uh, so uh, we, we <laughs> you said you're gonna keep it a secret. Obviously you uh, read her name out twice, so hardly a secret. Um, it, we, uh, she, she was a, a guest and shared a, uh, a short story with us that, that she wrote and then had mentioned that she was considering writing a longer piece uh, based off of that. And it sounds like she completed that work if she has an ending for it, or at least is working towards completion for that work. So my, my first thought off the bat is that I, I, I do want to read the whole story and to see uh, hmm. the, the whole saga as it, as it, uh, as it were for, for this story. Um, I, my impression was that the the podcast episode went well, um, and I I had I, I had hoped to have her back on, and so I guess I, I'm a little sad that this letter seems to close that door uh, for for that possibility. Yeah, that that is an unfortunate part because I really enjoyed that second episode we did where she came on. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Um. At the same time, I do have some more some regrets from that episode. Uh, more specifically, I think that I wasn't as honest as I could have been with the situation. Hmm. Um, I didn't. To me, a lot of the story and a lot of what happened didn't really affect me that hard, and I think it honestly was blown out of proportion on her end. And I've thought that from the beginning. Hmm. But I don't know, for whatever reason, I thought the mature journalistic thing to do would be to uh, just play it off in a different light a little bit. Hmm. And 
yeah, I, I thought that I thought it was a good, when I when it first came up and was unearthed and happened, I thought it would be a good opportunity for you know for some for some content for the episode, a good excuse to write, you know, flex that short story muscle a little bit, and yeah, sure, and uh, you know, just reengage some people in my life that haven't been there for a while. So that I was all about that, but at the same time, like. I always found it difficult to get on board and take seriously the notion that she's still caught up on something that never happened 10 years ago. I think that was something that was hard for me to wrap my mind around. Right. Cause nothing in reality, nothing ever really happened between us. It was just 10 years ago. There was something that didn't happen and that's what's having all these long-term impacts. And after the first episode with her or after the episode we did, I thought things were cool. It's like, yeah. And I think all the listeners or anyone that heard that episode thought things were good. And I think everyone thought that way, but yeah, I, I really, I thought it was our, she's definitely been our best guest. Yeah, fantastic. guest. <laughs> Maybe even our worst guest as well, but <laughs> I don't need to get in technicalities. No, I, we really appreciate her being on here and everything. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it was our, it was our, I, I think, I mean, we can be honest about, I think the episode really did go well. And I think we would feel, both of us would feel comfortable saying if we felt otherwise. Um, I think, I think uh, you make a, an interesting point about how the two of you, you know, let's, let's say that there's this thing, this, this experience between the two of you that, that did happen. You know, in other words, whatever did or didn't happen that saga of your life did did occur and what's interesting and kind of the point that you're making is that two people can experience the same thing but have a totally different reaction to it i mean and it, it would seem to me that really you know you you and uh, you and uh and she not only have a different take on things but it's like a completely opposite take i mean you're basically saying that that nothing happened and she's of course saying you know something very very important to to her did happen and so i mean i i think something that i've definitely tried to to work on in my own life and that i think you know anybody listening can experience this has, has probably had a similar experience where you know, we, we probably all have been on both sides of this situation where something happened that either we did not feel strongly about, but someone else did, or the opposite, where we felt strongly about something and the other person didn't. And so I, I do think it's part of, of raising our emotional quotient. You know, you people talk about IQ, but now you hear about EQ, this emotional quotient where we're learning how to, you know, uh, understand the feelings of other people that, um, it's always important to remember that the the same exact thing can be experienced by two different people or multiple different multiple people in totally in totally different ways. And so, uh, what what I find most unfortunate, I guess, is that this is this is basically being resolved by uh, um, by closing off a relationship, you know, by by closing off a friendship, which to me is kind of always a sad thing when that when that happens. Yeah, uh, fortunately, uh, we've closed off our friendship a few times at this point, and if history does uh, tend to repeat itself, it, I imagine this is only a temporary situation. But either way, I'm I'm not affected. I'm not. If, if I had to put money on it, I think that the ruling of this would be overruled within the next few years. 
But it still way. hurts to to even have, you know, let's just say the, you know, whatever the future brings. It, it's always sad to lose a friend, right? And some of that frustration uh, comes from the fact that, well, let me back up a little bit. We're, you said that it's funny how two people can essentially see the same screen, but they see two different realities on exactly, that. Yeah. Yes. And just to further that, it's not only just retrospectively looking back or in the moment, looking back and seeing these two movies playing on the same screen at the same time. Right. Uh, certain things can happen in the world that can change your previous memories of those screens and those realities. Right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Or, or even just how you relate to the memory. Like even if the memory stays the same, your, your take on it can be changed by a future version of yourself. In fact, you would expect it to change because you're no longer right. the same person. Right. Right. You're constantly changing or it could be something outside of your control that comes in and interferes and then therefore changes your past views of reality. But yeah. the reason she's doing this, the reason that this email has been sent out now and that these, this, uh, conversation has been started is because she recently got a boyfriend within the past month or two well it's not i think that may be a little unfair to her i think that might be a little unfair to her think about that we leave great terms after the podcast everything is going well you know just casual banter over text or whatever and then out of nowhere she has a boyfriend for the first time in i don't know how many years i don't know many years and a week after that point, or a week after that's disclosed to me, this also comes out. So I know mind reading is a tough thing to do, but yeah, let's break out the loser thing. There we go. And, and just for, for your edification, I, when you're talking about the two movies on the same screen, I also showed up loser thing. I mean, we're not, to, to be clear, we're not calling anybody a loser. That, that is the name of the book, loser thing. And he talks about these things in the book. Joe and I both wish he had called the book winner thing. Right, Joe. I think we both agree on that. We would have been a better title, I think, for the book, but but uh, wanted to clarify that. Better yeah. But in, in any in any event, in any event, yes. The the mind reading comment. We don't want to read minds. Or I think even future telling, which is kind of a different, not quite mind reading, but kind of related. You know, we want to avoid doing that as well. But but uh, I, I just want. I mean, I just want to come back to this thing. I mean, I, I again. It's it's always sad to lose uh, to lose a friend, right? I mean, that's that. Even if we're over, well, I, not we. I I assume I I assume that, that her and I are still friends. Like as I you know, but we can be in this gym. No, yeah. I think I think you guys are done too. I think you're uh, you're you've been banned by approximation. Oh, man, I, I have the uh, Joseph stink on me. I you know it's like a repellent. Or, yeah. You know, it's it's a repellent to some people, but it's a. Uh, Hopefully, hopefully not to our viewers. Remember, at Rose underscore rhetoric. But yeah, I think that to me. But I, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Will, yeah. do you plan on reading? Let's, let's assume that uh, her having the, and what, what reads like a closing paragraph or the closing page of, uh, of the piece yeah. that she was working on. Do you, do you plan on reading that when it comes out? I assume the answer is yes. Well, let me, uh, that was a big part of the story. And I, let, let me just read it again. The whole thing for, for our viewers at home, we, we, we promise this will not take up the whole episode. We have other things to talk about as well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is what the people come for. 
Unfortunately, that is probably true. Go ahead. Go ahead. In the email, it says new relationships have blossomed in my life. Huh. That's kind of consistent with my theory, right? And we both know longer the Nick and Kenzie described in this account. When we are in the same room or when his name appears on my phone, I no longer feel on the verge of shattering. It will always be sad. We won't be the friends we once were. I mean, we'll see. Future will say how that works out. But I'll continue. It is sad I won't meet his future parent, partner, or children. Hmm. Interesting. That's a... Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting thing to say to someone, I think. It is sad I won't watch him grow old. It is sad I won't marvel at the person he grows into. It will always be a sad thing. But I am not sad about it anymore. Even though she just used the word sad like three times prior to that. I have mourned it slowly and painstakingly, but I have mourned it and let it go. Okay, so we went from sadness to mourning. He is not my enemy. We were kids. We were kids together, and for that, I will always be grateful. So, I, I don't know. It's just, it just seems very dramatic to me for what really transpired. And if I were to read it, let, let me say this. When I wrote the first piece in response, I didn't come from that frame. I didn't come from that point of view. I took it as like, okay. Wait, wait, wait. Let's re return. When we were saying, let's clarify the point of view that you're talking about what what point of view did you have when you wrote your response piece for episode number two i took it as you know complete equals like we're complete equals on a playing field right like she wrote a respected account of something that happened and then i took the same frame on the other side and you know came in from a different angle type thing and it's hard to keep maintaining that facade of a position when you think that the reasoning behind all this, because it wasn't about something that happened 10 years ago. It was about something that didn't happen 10 years ago. And I think there's a distinction there. Sure. Um, I, I don't want to use the word petty because I don't want to belittle what she's saying, but that's along the nature of how I, how I perceive it and how I actually felt like what she wrote. Yeah. And I think it would just, you know, you're just having a very different response to the circumstances of, of what happened, which I, I, I think is probably fairly common with, with people. I mean, especially when, when, when romance is involved, I mean, you know, whether someone doesn't feel the same way or does feel the same way or, you know, as we were joking, I mean, the real love story in that piece that you wrote and that, and that she wrote, you know, was basically Joe with Joe. I mean, that was the real love story at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, they're still together. So uh, there was a, it was a happy ending for somebody. But um, I think, I think uh, I, I, I definitely am, am interested in, in, in seeing her piece and kind of seeing the, you know, what, what she lays out as kind of the, the whole story, I guess. I mean, I, and again, I, I don't really know what she's planning on writing. Um, you know, I know that she has the, the short story and then you know, she's going to, I, I guess, expand it maybe or something. But um, I mean, it will be, it will be interesting to, to see what, what episodes or, or what events uh, that you and her are interpreting differently. And, but, uh, 
yeah, I, 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 just, I just come back to you. I think it's always sad when, when people stop being friends. And I, I, would, I would hope that uh, that isn't the case. It seems that you're hopeful it will not be. Uh, let me ask you this question. Do you, would you feel the need to write a response piece the way that you did for her short story? Do you think that you'd feel a need to write a response to her, to her longer piece? Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if it's particularly worth my time, but I will say that if I did write it, it would be from a very different frame than the first piece mm. because again, you just gotta, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to write about something that's not honest to, to me. Sure. And that's kind of in the same sense that like, yeah, it sucks to lose friends sometimes, but it's also better to maintain that that version of yourself that doesn't change for other people. So yeah, I can walk moving friends and, you know, in, in a way that it doesn't affect me that much. But the other petty, the other part about this that relates back to the pettiness is that, yeah, we can come to this seemingly resolved thing. And then, you know, just by happenstance, a boy comes along and just changes all that. Like it just totally turns the field and does a 180 on all this. Like, why would she be interested in coming to resolution and coming on here and doing this when something like that could just 180 the result? So that's, that seems a little not solid, a little wavering to me. And I think that's where some of the frustration comes from. Sure. But I mean, at the end of the day, like if she, like you were talking about, it would be interesting to see the rest of her story and hash. I mean, I put out the invite for her to come in here and read it, but she doesn't want to. Maybe we could find another female reader to come read her story on her behalf. If, if any other girls that know Joe want to come on here and share a short story, uh, email <laughs> us at. <no. laughs> yeah, you saw how well it worked out for the last one. So. Find us on Twitter at roses underscore writer, and uh, we'll get you on here as soon as possible. <laughs> maybe we program Alexa to read it, maybe. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, I again, I guess you know. Uh, I mean, is, is there anything more that you want to that you want to have on 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 this? I was just gonna basically repeat what I've been saying. You know that hopefully you know, this isn't where the story ends. That hopefully, you know, we, we wish her success with the piece that, 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 it, that it turns out well. And that uh, if there is a change of heart and she would like to share it on here, then we'll always keep the invitation open. Yeah. And I, I just want to finish by saying that we've, we've kept this open with the podcast and with our listeners. And I felt it was only right that we keep continue to keep it open through this. So that, that, that is part of the reason why I'm sharing this today. And uh, yeah, like you said, we hope for the best, but it is what it is. So we'll see what happens. It okay. is it is what it is. As always, we'll be keeping Joseph's email account open for the public throughout the, for the remainder of this podcast. This will, be, this will be a returning segment where Joe picks an email from his inbox, shares it with the audience, and we talk about that person on air. Yes. That could be pretty good. I get some good emails, especially if I can bring in some work emails too. There you go. Well, you've already shared your work emails from, uh, you know, episode a while back. And it's all about the, uh, you know, ceasing your, uh, your more aggressive uh, colleagues and getting them involved with projects. Yep, yep. Yep. Well, very, very good. Well, was there anything else on this that you wanted to say or anything else that you wanted to, to share before we move on? No, let's move on. What you got? All right. Well, I have something that could not be further away <laughs> from uh 
<laughs> yeah, from 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 uh, college college romance uh, as it as it was. Um, Wait, you don't dwell on things that didn't happen ten years ago? Oh, I do, but I I don't share it on air. That's never what happened. <laughs> Keep it in front of it, yeah. it's, a, it's a different editorial choice that uh, the uh, two hosts of this podcast, you know, one of our, one of our many differences that creates just enough friction for enough heat for enough light. Um, I wanted to talk. So I, I promised now for two episodes to do a more in-depth discussion on the number by Alex Berenson. And so we are going to do that today. We're also going com- to combine that discussion with another related corporate fraud type discussion talking about Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma, of course, is the uh, drug company that manufactured oxycodone. Uh, They've been in the news recently, and they've been in the news really pretty frequently now for for many years as uh, more information about the uh, opioid epidemic has been coming to public light. I wanted to describe for listeners, the, the overarching theme for today's episode. And then I wanted to go into some specifics about Purdue Pharma and some specific examples in the number by Alex Berenson. And to be quite honest, I mean, this, it, it, it could be a little dry. So I, I, I don't want to, you know, talk and talk and talk. So every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. We can uh, discuss things, but then I, I do want to, you know, from time to time return to these prepared comments just to make sure that we get all this stuff out on the table. And I, I, I want to start by uh, explaining something I was thinking about a lot this week, which is what, what is it about large bureaucracies that, uh, you know, and unfortunately they, they tend to develop and I, and I shouldn't say that they, that they tend to develop, but that when, when large bureaucracies do develop, uh, you know, fairly evil practices, what, what is happening that makes that possible? And I think one of the things that makes that possible is a dehumanizing effect of simplifying complex decisions. And I think what happens is we take a complex situation and we replace that discussion with an equation. And we, we replace complicated parameters with little metrics. Now we've talked about this problem on, on the podcast before. When you have a metric in place, that's meant to measure something. Once somebody knows that metric is in place, they'll just figure out how to raise that metric and really to separate that metric from whatever hard work or whatever effort you were trying to measure in the first place. So as an example, we've given GPA. Let's, let, let's, let's give the GPA example again. If, if all that matters is your GPA, then you will be incentivized to take easy classes to bump up your GPA. In fact, we see this with with medical school, right? We see people take majors that are easy with the whole purpose of keeping their GPA high. Now, originally, I'm sure when they were picking GPA as a metric, they weren't trying to push people into easy majors. They were trying to measure intelligence and work ethic, you know, grit, these kind of things that GPA can be a fairly decent measure of. But once the game is known, the game can be played, the game can be rigged, and you have people chasing metrics instead of chasing the result the metric was supposed to be measuring. Where do we see that with companies? Well, obviously with profit, with making money. So I imagine it would be really, really hard for the average person or even for the unaverage person 
to knowingly engage in, a, in an activity that results in thousands of people dying. If they had to look those people in the eye, if they knew these people, if they were their friends, if they were family members, that would be really, really hard. But it becomes much easier when that person is replaced with a dollar sign or when they're described in terms of potential, potential profit for a company. I wanna give a couple of examples with Purdue Pharma that uh, I was reading this, this weekend. Uh, the state of Massachusetts uh, engaged in, in a lawsuit with Purdue Pharma back in 2018. The documents are public record, you can read them. Uh, I'll, in fact, I'll probably post a link on our website. It's like 277 pages long. I did not read the whole thing. I read maybe about a, maybe a third of it, and it was more than enough for today's episode. That, that shows you just how chocker block full um, the, uh, the state's case against Purdue was. But I wanted to give a couple of examples that I thought were especially egregious from Purdue Pharma, and then talk about that for a little bit. And then I want to switch over to the number by Alex Berenson to talk about some financial fraud that occurs as well, and uh, the impact that it has on, on all of us. And um, let's, let's start, like I said, with, with Purdue Pharma. So Purdue had sales reps, and, and again, just I, I'm not going to quote and say if it is a quote, but this, this is all from these court documents. I'll be posting a link to that on the website. I encourage people to, to, to check it out. It's laid out. It's spelled out in front of you. It's also included in the documentation. They have uh, you know, pamphlets from, from Purdue Pharma or uh, training materials from, from Purdue Pharma. All this is in there. Um, yeah, and Purdue wants Pharma is a, it's a pharmaceutical company? Yes, yes, yes. They were, they were making and selling. Uh, oxycodone, which is a, a, a an opioid painkiller. Um, yeah. So here is here is one of the one of the uh, I would say fairly egregious, fairly awful things that they that they did. Um, so it, it became known to to Purdue Pharma that uh, people who first off from from like the beginning, basically Purdue was downplaying the addictive potential for these opioids, playing it down, playing it down, playing it down. They later on in their own internal documents began talking about, yeah, these things are addictive. In fact, this might even be a business for us because the market for treating addiction is like a fantastic growth market for us. Okay, I mean, and this again is in the documents, but that came later on. The first thing I wanted to talk about was how they would push doctors to prescribe not only more pills to their patients, but also higher doses to their patients. And, and, and one reason for this is Purdue knew that when people were put on higher doses of opioids, they tended to stay on them longer. Now, why, why might that be? Why, why might it be the case that if somebody's put onto a higher dose, they stay on longer? They're addicted. I mean, this is obvious when you, when you, when you look at this stuff. So that was one thing that they engaged in as a practice, that they, that they knowingly pushed doctors to increase the dosage of, of these opioids to their patients, knowing that it would lead to people taking the medication for longer periods of time. The other thing is that they engaged in really aggressive uh, sales tactics with doctors. They, 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 they had some doctors that were meeting Purdue sales staff like on, a, on a, almost on a daily basis. And the sales reps would meet with these doctors, they would discuss the patients they're gonna be seeing for that day, and they would push these doctors to get those patients onto pain medication. 
And then after this meeting, they would follow up again with the doctor to make sure that they put those patients on, on pain medication. And they also targeted the elderly. Well, why would you target the elderly? Medicare, Medicare and Medicare Part D, which covers prescription drugs. So even if you don't know anybody that was affected by drug addiction, even if you don't know anybody that was, a, that was themselves affected by drug addiction, you know, two layers removed, all of us were targeted by Purdue Pharma because they went after the Medicare market. So this carried on for, of course, a very long time. And I, I do have some other examples that I, that I want to give for, for Purdue. But I, I, I want to get this, to this point again of it, it's hard for me to imagine somebody engaging in that kind of behavior if it was being done on a personalized level. That it seems to me that for that kind of egregiousness to occur, there has to be some kind of dehumanizing going on behind the scenes. And I think it's really easy to, de to dehumanize things when we only think in terms of money and not in terms of people. But I want to I stop there. I've been talking for, for a little bit. I want to stop there, have a little bit of a discussion, and then move on to some other topics. Okay. Uh, first of all, what you were saying about metric-based goals and how that possibly could be the roots of a lot of this evil that's happening. Um, it reminds me back to a previous episode where we talked about like GPA, for example, and how the incentive then becomes not to learn the material, not to do well in school, not to add any real value anywhere, to just find a way to manipulate that number into being higher, right? Mm. So one way, actually, the most common way I see that happening, well, there is the, the group of people that take the easy classes, but then there's also just straight cheating. Like, <laughs> that's a... And that's something that actually some feedback from our listeners said that they'd like to hear more about is uh, more about cheating in college and in schools and experiences like that. Sure. And yeah, I can say that I witnessed cheating on, I want to say every single test that I took throughout high school and college. I'm trying to think if there are any exceptions to that. For sure. Every class. I mean, a hundred percent. They're cheating in every class. hundred percent. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I'm just have a little bit of a biased perspective because I, <laughs> I would definitely uh, stretch the rules on some exams and I understood how that whole operation worked and how people would do it. So maybe I was just had a little bit more of a keen eye for seeing that as it happened and went down, you know, like kids would, would write shit like in their water bottles, like on the inside right. of it, like change labels, or you could definitely just see people peeking over, looking or. Yeah. It was an open book. They had notes or the, the TI-84 hack where you can just straight upload anything onto it. You, you can just type in notes into your calculator. I'm sure calculators are so good now you can just take pictures. But, uh, yeah, it, it really wasn't even fair. Like, and I think the teacher started to buy into that. But, yeah, yeah that's just another example of a metric-based goal leading to skullduggery um, with the GPA. Yeah. I mean, it, it becomes the thing you chase, not, you know, it, it stops being objective, right? It begins, it, it, it becomes its own objective, but really a metric is never, usually never the goal. If you're trying to measure something else, this metric is, is a, a way to do that. But once mm -hmm. people know the game, you know, once you have the, the gamesmanship in place, then, you know, it's, it's, 
you know, it, it, it loses its value basically. And it, cheating in, in GPA is, is I think the best example of this that uh, exists. Let me, let me go as far as to say this. And I say this for me, I, I'm not, I won't put words in your mouth, but I, I will say this for me. And if for anybody that I know, if you want to see somebody who cheated in college, hand that person a mirror. Okay. I do not know a single person who never cheated a single time in college at any level. I mean, give me a break. Now, is that, it? Does, it's like, well, then so what? No, it isn't so what. It, that, that shows you that there is, a, there is a corrosive quality to simple metrics because it, it too easily lends itself to one, a pressure to play the game because even if you don't cheat when you first get to college, you will be when you leave because you're going to see your friends get, you know, recognized for good GPAs and you're going to see your friends get recognized with internships and, you know, research opportunities, et cetera. I, <laughs> let me, let me go even further and say this. Um, how many people pay a price for cheating? I mean, if, if, if everybody cheats, how many people do you personally know? I know maybe a couple of people who got caught cheating. Not many. Not many. So not only do you not get caught, but in a way, then you're punished for not cheating because now what's happened? Well, the metrics become inflated a little bit yeah. and a little bit and a little bit. And so, you know, what what are people left to do? You know, in other words, you, you, we have this idea of, well, we want to be able to tell which students are comprehending the material. And then we also want to away from the employer or, you know, the graduate course, whatever it is, we want to be able to measure people who can contribute. We'll look at this GPA metric and that gets filtered through the system. And now people know, well, I need to have a high GPA. So it's, I, I think cheating is, is absolutely the best example of that that people will encounter on a, on a daily life. And, you know, again, to the point where basically, you know, and Joe and I were in this same class, the teacher stopped caring about cheating basically and just said, look, everybody gets, you know, three or two strikes per test or whatever to get caught cheating. No harm, no foul. Yeah. I mean, it, this is like a national lampoon at this point. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is ridiculous. And I know I've said this before on here, but I, it's worth repeating the, the Scott Adams adage that whenever there's a high incentive to cheat, AKA better grades, more money. Uh, and there's a very little chance of getting caught. None of our friends ever got caught or none of the people we knew. Nope. Uh, cheating happens 100% of the time, not some of the time. It, it always happens. And I think that's clearly what happens with the GPAs. And like you said, chasing these metrics and that does it almost trains that behavior of chasing metrics maybe that is what employers are looking for maybe they're not looking for people that go out and just genuinely learn things for the sake of learning them maybe they're right. looking for people that have some experience hacking these metrics or sure. doing whatever it takes to get these metrics up without getting caught that's a really good point and especially if that's the company culture, if it's don't ask questions, we're here to drive quarterly profit. We're here to drive quarterly earnings. We're not here to do anything besides that. Um, I think that's a fair point. And I mean, I, I, I could spend the whole episode reading through examples of things that Purdue was engaged in. This, the, the, the super aggressive marketing, the, 
you know, at one point they were contemplating getting into the, into the drug rehab business, you know, having products for, for drug rehabilitation or for, you know, treating uh, addiction or whatever it was. And they, and they, they called it end to end pain management. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgusting. Um, you know, that was called project Tango. I, I don't know that it ever went anywhere, but that they were even discussing it shows you just how morally corrupt uh, these people had become. And, like I said, I am, I am going to post uh, the link to those core documents on our website. I would encourage viewers, just, just scroll through it and just read some of these examples. Look at their marketing material. Look at how they were talking uh, amongst, the, amongst themselves. Uh, it was just truly, aside from evil, it was just, it was gross. It was disgusting. Now, here's why I think this is a big problem for America. I don't know any way that a technological advanced society like America can continue to improve without having large concentrations of power. I, I, I don't know how that would be possible. I, I think companies like Google and SpaceX and Tesla and probably even Purdue, that when you have these large concentrations of power and, and, and on, on one hand, it's almost inevitable because when you have an environment like America where people can accumulate massive amounts of wealth, it will happen. There's, what, 300 million people in the United States and people can make money and they can make lots of money. Then you're going to have people that are going to be on the far end of that spectrum that are going to have huge amounts of wealth and with that huge amounts of power. And I don't know any way around that. I, I don't even know that, uh, you know, I'm going to be, careful how I say this. I, I think there's even a benefit in some cases of having a huge concentration of power with the right people. But this really underlines what I think the central challenge of America will be for the next, I'll say, 100 years. I mean, that, that's how confident I am. You know how much I hate the future prediction, you know, because of, you know, books like Antifragile by Nassim Taleb, you know, we don't predict the future. Here, I think I have to. I think the thing that America has to focus on the most as a country is building a culture of individual accountability. And I, I, I want to say that by saying, by, I want to explain that by saying this. We were talking about trust versus transparency maybe one or two episodes ago. And I, I am totally on board with that. However, I do not think that transparency by itself will be enough because it will, I think, always be the case that when everybody is working, when everybody has their own jobs in their own life, even with 100% transparency, you would still need all the time to go over and review all the transparent material. And so while I, I want that and I want things to be more transparent, we also have to accept that at some level, trust will be a part of the system. And the only way that that works is by having a strong, robust culture of individual responsibility. I the way that I view individual responsibility is basically that it, 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 is, it is a fractal level or it, 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 is a, it is a fractal way of regulation because every single person, no matter how big the system gets, if people truly do have individual accountability, a system can grow and grow and grow and grow as long as everybody at every step is holding themselves accountable, then hopefully we can prevent these things from happening. Obviously, that is not the case right now. I just gave you horrible examples from Purdue Pharma. I want to know how we, we push that, how we improve a culture of individual accountability, because I do not think that
that transparency will be enough. And I also do not think that regulation will be enough. And I'm saying I want, I want both. I want all of these things. I want more. I, that, that, that's all good. I don't think it will be enough. Okay. There, let's, uh, let's start unpacking that because there's a lot there. Uh, I want to start with, so the one of the, one of the examples you gave was of the narcotics of the oxycodone and the addictive quality of it and how they're making money off not only the sale, but also the treatment of people that have issues with that. Oh, no, 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 that they, that they considered it, that they could, that, that was, yeah, that they had considered doing that. Yeah, I want to make that clear. So that was in Project Tango where they were contemplating the idea of getting into, and I don't know if it was the rehab business or if it was developing a chemical or a medicine that could be used as part of treating addiction or whatever it was, but they were basically, like I said, they were looking at what they were calling end-to-end, you know, pain management or, you know, treatment, whatever it was. But basically, they tell people with drugs and become addicted and then, oh, hey, also we can work on the people who are addicts as well. Even though, you know, we said for so long that there's such a low potential for addiction. And then when they were, you know, pitching the idea of the, of the treatment, it was uh, anybody can become addicted. It's like, oh, that's an interesting change of pace from where things were before. Yeah, it's like including a Narcotics Anonymous flyer in with every prescription. Right? It, it, it reminded me in Breaking Bad when Jesse goes to the rehab meetings to try to sell people methamphetamine. I mean, it was almost, you know, it wasn't quite that. I mean, I don't want to make produce sound worse than they are, which is, I think, hard to do. But, I mean, it was, it seemed kind of close, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. So, where where are the, where would you draw the line then? Like, at, or where could one draw a line on what is morally acceptable versus what isn't morally acceptable in terms of things that sell? Like, that's a pretty yeah. clear example of, like, a narcotic that's addictive and that literally ruins people's lives. Uh, what about... Coca-Cola, what about sugar? What about alcohol? What about any social media to children? I mean, it's hard it's hard to draw a line. And I and I think, you know, I don't let like me anything let that me, sells is gonna be addictive to some extent. And I fair point. And and let me let me actually on on the record, I guess, let me let me also state that I think Purdue Pharma and their chemicals helped. A ton of people. I mean, pain is real. I don't want it to sound like we're dismissing people that are in chronic pain. I'm, I'm not saying that. Uh, people, for all I know, majority, I don't know percentage. I don't want to guess a percentage. But for all I know, the majority of people who were taking Purdue Pharma drugs were benefited from them. Now, again, I don't have a fact to prove that. I'm saying, imagine that were the case. Okay. Um, what, made, what made Purdue, in, in this case, immoral was not that they sold something, but that they purposefully downplayed how addictive it was. And they, they, they purposefully had advertisement and targeted campaign to doctors, pharmacists, and patients downplaying addiction, downplaying the possibility of addiction. That made it dishonest. I think if Purdue from the beginning had said, look, these are extremely powerful drugs. They, they have a huge potential for addiction. They are still useful to people. People really do have chronic pain and they have a need for these medications, but we should always be concerned about the possibility of addiction. And if they happen to become addicted, we have a product for it. In other words, I'm now, I'm imagining, say that, say that they went through with Project Tango and actually began to treat the addiction side of it as well. I think even that could have been done morally if they were being honest from the beginning. I think in this case, what made Purdue mischievous and immoral was that they were lying and so for me 
I think you can sell almost anything as long as you're being honest to the consumer about what they're buying. To me, honesty is the cornerstone. I mean, just by definition of any contract has to be made with honesty. Otherwise, there'd there'd be no point in doing it. And so from that basis, start with telling the truth. Purdue did not tell the truth. And that's why they were acting immorally. Well, let me let me present let me present an example or a case where that those lines get a little bit fuzzy to me. Sure. And it and it goes like this. So you you were or we were just describing these executives as being immoral in their actions because they were underplaying the addiction potential of these drugs. So my question is, when you look at these people, how do you know that it's actual malintent or that they're just completely absorbed in their own cognitive distance bubble that they don't realize what they, they're doing is wrong despite the scientific evidence that they have? Sure. And, and, and an analogous situation like might be someone on the left or the right, whichever political side you dislike or whatever, just imagine that for the sake of this example. And, you know, whether they're saying, oh, let's raise taxes, no, let's lower taxes. Uh, one way is probably going to work, one way is probably not going to work. There's science on the, all over the place saying that both sides work. But whoever promotes A or B policy, uh, they're not doing it out of malintent. They're doing it because they, they were founded in a group with high you know, I don't want to say cult-like, but high group bonding and uh, cognitive dissonance and those types of things where they actually believe this shit. Like maybe the executives at, at Purdue Pharma don't believe that the addictive quality of these drugs is what it actually is. I think that that's a really, really good question. And I think it underlines a really important part, which is I think it's far more important to correct actions than to assign blame. So if, if there was like some log jam where, you know, in order to improve on the, you know, number of addicts on the street or something, but to do so, we had to just give Purdue a, a clean slate and say, forget the whole thing. I would more or less be okay with that. Like I, I care less about blaming people than I do about, about correcting the, the action. What I would say ultimately lies people's responsibility is that when you start doing something, when you begin a process, you have to always be skeptical of yourself and question yourself honestly and be open to feedback. So it wouldn't be that it's wrong for people to not have the answer right at the beginning. It would be bad if they didn't move towards the right answer eventually. And I think actually this kind of ties into a, something that Scott Adams talks about, which is Wherever you begin on an issue is not that important. It's probably kind of random. It's probably a lot of bias. What matters far more is, where, is what direction you're heading towards. And I think that's a really good insight here because I don't, I don't need to know that at the beginning Purdue was lying to know that what they acted or how they acted was, was bad because they got caught in 2007 for doing this. And they were told, yes, we did this. Yes, we won't do it again. And then they did it again. So. What, what made Purdue about uh, acting immorally is that they admitted to downplaying the role of addictive qualities of their drugs and then did it yet another time. So is, is that a, a true moral admission of guilt or is it 
a court tactic, you know, maybe the lawyers said play, play guilty so that you can get off with this or make it easier on you. Sure. But then they would be either way, they'd be lying. So either way, well, it'd be wrong for them to do. Them to, right? Like, no, you're never forced to no. lie. I mean, in, in, this, in their case, they could have fought the court. They, they could have fought the case. I think the moment that you, as you know, in, in this case, as powerful people, when they admitted to wrongdoing, either if they were lying, then that would be bad. And if they were admitted wrongdoing, then did the wrongdoing again, it would be, it would be bad. And either, in, in, really, in either case, they're not leaving themselves much wiggle room to come out the good guys here. Like, can you think of an example where maybe there's some traffic infraction or something? where it makes sense just to plead guilty and get it oh, over to with. like it out of it. It wouldn't you know, be right to do that, but I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, do people like, lie to avoid something to, or maybe to fight a certain ticket or a certain collision related incident yeah. that your options are either plead guilty and pay like a $200 fine or fight it and pay thousands of dollars on a lawyer in hopes that you don't get it on your record or you maybe get some of that money back no doubt no doubt that that may happen but that still wouldn't be an excuse to repeat the behavior again so like if you get caught speeding or something and you plead yeah. to it that wouldn't be an excuse to speed again so in the case of purdue pharma they got caught telling doctors telling patients that these weren't that addictive et cetera, et cetera. got caught admitted to to doing that and then did it again so in in, yeah. in, in purdue's case you know, whether they were lying the first time or the second time, whatever it was, they, they still repeated the behavior that they said they wouldn't repeat. And um, like I said, from their own internal documentation, it, it's very clear that they, that they knew. I mean, this is, this was again, part of their, part of their strategy for considering going after the, the rehab market is that they knew that there was broad potential for people to become addicted and, uh, or that broad potential for people that, that were addicted. Uh, for treatment, and they knew that these drugs posed a threat to a wide range of people, uh, and just addiction in general posed a threat to a wide range of people. So I think I think in Purdue's case, uh, you know, from their own mouth, basically, they were downplaying the quality of the of the addictive property of these drugs, and got caught doing it, and then did it again, and got caught again. <laughs> so. Yeah. And what, what do we do? We just slap them with some fines? Oh, I mean, I don't understand why that is the way that the world works. I saw a funny headline that I thought was kind, I mean, funny in the sense that it was depressing, but it was going over the family that was involved, again, the uh, Sackler family that was involved with this. And uh, it's basically, look, we don't put people with that much money in jail. And we don't. And I, I don't know why that is. I, I don't know enough about the, the law to know if that's right or wrong, but it's from the outside looking in, it sure seems unfair that, uh, you know, other people are in jail for things that I would think would be a smaller offense, but somehow, I mean, this uh, family was part of a storm that has ravaged this country, that still is ravishing this country. And uh, it, it seems bizarre these people aren't paying a higher price. So it's upsetting to me. <laughs> I'm, yeah. sure to, I'm sure to many people, not just to me, of course. So something not right there. Uh, you talked about a culture of individual responsibility. Right. Now, if I am someone that is, that has cultural or that has individual responsibility, if I'm from the group, group of people that have that, 
and maybe look at it from your perspective, if you were someone that had the individual responsibility, would you ever feel compelled to file some sort of lawsuit against a company like this that got you addicted? I think you would have to. I think that that would be part of the individual responsibility. Now, let me, let me be clear. I'm not claiming that I have the moral courage to do that. I think that would be very hard. In fact, let me, let me quote a quote from you, or not from you, I'm sorry, a, a quote from the number, which ties in very well with this, actually, and is a quote from uh, Upton Sinclair. And uh, hopefully this is not violating a copyright issue, though I guess it might be. Well, we'll find out. So th this is from Upton Sinclair, which I think ties in beautifully with your question. Okay. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to be a whistleblower when you have a family of three at home and college tuition to pay for and food upon the table, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, what's your responsibility? Is it to feed your family? Is it to turn, turn your company in? Is it, I, yeah. it's hard. I, I don't want this to sound preachy. I'm not intending for it to sound preachy. This is for all of us to work on, including me. I mean, all of us can probably think of examples in their life where they did not act with enough moral you know, courage, basically. But to answer your question, I think if you're, if you're observing something wrong and you're aware that it's wrong and you know that it's wrong, then I, I do think you have a responsibility to say something. And I'm sure that there would be a scenario where I, where I, where it would be difficult to choose right or wrong, but I'm just thinking of the, the clean cut example where you walk in and the company or the boss says, Hey, we're going to break this law. It's going to hurt these people, but we don't care because we're going to make money. Again, this is an extreme example, but let's just imagine that this happens. I didn't think that you would have an obligation to blow the whistle to, you know, whatever procedure you take to take some kind of action. What do you think? No, I, I understand what you're saying. And maybe I just need some help redefining some terms or something, but Yes, I, I, I understand there's a massive injustice that's happening in front of you and you have it in your circle of influence to make a difference in that injustice, then yeah, by all means, you should step in and make that happen. Yeah. But what, what about for someone who walks around to the world and they see so many different injustices out there around every corner right? that just... A, well, A, the sheer number of how many they see, it's not really feasible to, to intervene in every single circumstance. Yeah. But also, secondly, there's even when people do try to intervene that those results are futile. They don't, they don't go anywhere. Like it's human nature that you're fighting, and human nature is always going to be there in a lot of circumstances. So yeah. I, I think that some people might take the perspective of okay there's so much so many fucked up things going on out there there's so much wrong every time in the past where i try to make a difference it hasn't done anything every time on this particular subject every time other people in society have tried to make a difference and then it hasn't done anything um at what point do you say okay, if I have individual responsibility, therefore, and I'm promoting a culture where everyone else has re individual responsibility, why does the responsibilities of other people 
not the individual come into priority. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a, a really good point and a point that I, I largely agree on. I, I do not think that you as an individual have a responsibility to shoulder the world's problems. That would not be my my take on individual responsibility. That I, I think and I like the phrase you used a moment ago, this idea of your circle of influence. Um, I think you should be responsible for things inside that circle of influence. You know, if you if you have a close friend who is uh you know, I don't know, stealing or something, you should say something to your friend. Does that mean they get to go around in like a, a cape and a mask looking for every pot? No, I, I don't think it does. Um, I think that your primary responsibility is your circle of influence. Your primary responsibility is yourself. That is the first thing to do. Your second responsibility would be to your, to your sphere of influence. If you have any effect beyond that, it would be extremely small, no doubt about it. Uh, to anybody who is trying to solve big problems, I don't want to discourage you, and I would hope you the best of luck, but I don't know that you have a responsibility to, you know, let's, let, let's pick an example that I think will not be controversial. It's, there's any number of human rights abuses going on right now in China, right? I mean, I don't think I have to, anyone's learning anything when I say that. Do I think that everybody living in a, in a free country has an obligation to fly over to China and fight in a rebellion to free the China? No, I don't think that. Um, would I be opposed to it if they did? I maybe. I would want to see what they're planning on doing. Uh, but in, in terms of responsibility, I think you're absolutely right. You start with yourself, and for for most days of the week, it probably ends with yourself as well. I think I think it is wrong to turn a blind eye to problems that you could solve, but I don't think you have an obligation to go looking for problems to solve. And so to 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 the except that that draws a demarcation in responsibility. That's what I would say it is. I don't drive around at night looking for people to save, but when I drive around, I obey traffic laws. Like that is how, how I would phrase it in my head. I have responsibility for myself, for my sphere of influence. It grows beyond that a little bit, but it tapers off pretty quickly because there's a lot of people in the world. And I think if we are pushing people to be responsible and, uh, and holding ourselves to that standard, then what you would hope is that you know, by having a good example, people learn from that. And, you know, maybe you have a ripple effect or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the way I look at the world is that big pharma is always going to have a going to have the U.S. by the nuts. They're always going to have us. Like if you look at the highest paying employers by by state, it's always big pharma, every single state. Like this is there's an insane amount of money going to these people. And. I, I worry because this corruption, it, it extends beyond just big pharma. Like it, it'll go into politics too. Like how much money is big pharma donating to politics? <laughs> like I imagine, I don't know the exact figures, but I bet it's a very large amount. I bet it's in the billions. And it just, it just reinforces this notion that how we think the world works is just it's a myth. It's, it does, it's not real. Like we think that we have elected officials that do jobs based on what the people want. That's totally not the case. Big tech, big pharma, big industry just always has and always will own the state of the nation and our politics. But the question then becomes, is that necessarily a bad thing? Because the U.S. is a pretty good place to be right now um, comparatively to other systems of government. So I, is it a bad thing? 
Yeah. And so let me, I'll, I'll take that up for just a little bit. I think I, I've had some experience, small, but some experience with uh, people who were elected into office. Um, and I, I don't know that my view is, is, is that cynical. I think the way that I see it is I try to put it in terms of, of risk. The, the times where I've talked to people that were staffers for people in Congress, I, I got the impression that these people really did care about their district and that they wanted to do what was best for their district and that they wanted to know what their district thought. I would say that even though that's my experience, I don't want to risk a company having influence over politicians. I don't want to risk big tech or big pharma or big defense. I mean, pick, you know, pick your poison. I don't want to risk that influence crowding out the voice of the district for those people. And so, you know, when I, when I see it from that point of view, it's, I, I want to make sure that even if currently today, it is the voice of the people that's controlling politics. I want it to stay that way. I don't want that to ever change. And what I fear is that there are extremely powerful institutions that have a ton of influence. And let's just pick media that can have a ton of influence over politics. And that it, and it has, it may have nothing to do with even lobbying, but just by controlling information flow. I, we were talking, I think maybe one or two episodes ago about the deep fakes. Okay. I saw a deep fake today that would knock your socks off. I mean, I couldn't tell it apart from the real thing. I mean, seriously, I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell it apart. That to me is terrifying. That to me is uh, yikes. I don't know what we do about that. And so, and, and, and to take that point to the point about individual responsibility, I don't see a way that the government could possibly regulate, you know, deep fake technology. I mean, how would you, what, what would that look like? Is that even a thing? That'd be ridiculous. So how do you can, how do you stop people from using that for evil? The only way that you could do it is to have individuals not want to do it, but nothing else would work. So either that is possible, which is like, seems like a pretty risky thing in my opinion, or we can't do anything, but those are only options. There, 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 there is no, well, we'll ban it. Well, ban what? Ban a video? I mean, how, how, how could you possibly do that? Yeah. So there, there are things on the horizon that, that, that I see coming towards us that really do freak me out and that really do, in my opinion, put us in a position of either all of us figure out that we need to act ethically and responsibly or we're, we're going to be in a world of hurt because I, I don't think the government will be able to save us from this. I really don't. And I don't think that even a majority of people who want to do good will be able to help. I mean, it, it really has to be almost everybody working towards, hey, we're not going to make a deep fake of a president launching a nuke because we don't want the world to blow up. Like, to me, like, that's what I'm thinking about is like, I, I, I don't know how you regulate that. I don't know that you can regulate that. So how do you stop it? Mm -hmm. Yet that people not want to do it which is yeah. extremely risky, right? Because it only takes a few people <laughs> to clown around and get us in a world of hurt. And I, I don't think humans have the capacity to, to regulate ourselves that effect, effectively or efficiently. A lot, of, a lot of examples of where we have not. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, just, I just read some from Purdue Pharma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this doesn't feel like something new. This feels like something that's always been there. You know, if it's big pharma today, maybe it was the, I don't know, the oil companies back then or the railroad companies back the then. Cigarette, cigarette companies. Bill, yeah. Bill Morris. Yeah. And it, 
who knows before that maybe in the medieval times it was the blacksmiths that were doing it <laughs> i mean do you, what's your confidence that we actually live in a democracy today and that we're not just completely controlled by the big industry yeah yeah that's a good question i <laughs> i i think that today americans are still responsible for the way things are i am very concerned that that is changing i'm very concerned that that is changing and i i am with you in saying that i i don't know how you convince people to not go on twitter and join a microcosm and only expose themselves to ideas that they want to hear over and over again to the point of demonizing the other side out of habit. I don't know how you stop that. Um, and I, it, it's again, it's how much do I think people can change in a short period of time? Not much, <laughs> uh, honestly, not much. And so we, we have built products that are successful because people respond to them. But in that response, we are, we are, we are basically amplifying the worst characteristics of humans with these platforms. And it seems whether it's a deep fake or, I mean, just good old fashioned lies. I mean, it doesn't need to be a deep fake. It's, you know, somebody were to say, oh, this is a hacked email. And it's like, well, is it real or not? We don't know, but it's a good, a good story. So we're going to run with it. It's like, it, this stuff spreads like wildfire. I mean, I don't, to, <clears throat> to the extent that, uh, a democracy depends on accurate information. I think we're in a, I think we're in a tough spot, but in a way, maybe our biases can help us a little bit because if our biases are not on the extreme, then maybe we're immune to some of the extreme, but I don't know that that's the case. And it seems that people do like the extreme. So if anything, maybe it's the opposite, but I don't, I, there are, there are some things coming down the pike right now that are really, got me nervous in deep fakes i literally dismissed it like a week ago <clears throat> big mistake <laughs> big mistake on my part i mean that, that i saw it once a day i couldn't tell it apart i thought it was real i, I mean i really thought it was real and they're only going to get better right? oh they're, it's going to be 3d they're going to be in your living room talking to you i mean it's going to be real people yeah it's going to be right there yeah i mean pretty devastating um and so you know, again, this all comes back to, you know, what do we do? We all have, I mean, this, you know, what, what, what can you do? Here's what you can do. Um, don't share something that you are not sure is real. And if you don't know, don't share it. I mean, that would be a good place to start. Um, I think, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think this has a simple answer because um, it is so enticing to, you know, see something and to think something is real and to, you know, be in the know and all this stuff. And I mean, it's, it's just, it, it creates a very bad environment. So that, that has me pretty nervous. Um, before it gets too late, let me, let me transition to the number real quick from, uh, I held up my piece of paper to the number real quick. Let me, let me just give some examples from this book that I thought were, were fairly egregious and how companies were, you know, basically manipulating their uh, quarterly earnings in order to boost their their stock price. So, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to list these again. I recommend people read the book. The book came out fairly long ago. It's still interesting to read, um, and definitely lessons worth knowing. 
for the future. So one thing that they talk about in the book is this idea where companies would hide layoffs for performance-based firings. So they would fire a whole bunch of people and say, well, it's because of performance because they don't want to admit having a layoff. But these same people actually had just gotten like good performance reviews or that kind of thing. So it seems a little fishy. Wait, wait, say that again. What did they do? So they would, they, would, they would fire a large number of people and claim it was for performance-related reasons. But these employees had reasons to think that it was more just a massive layoff, that these employees had gotten good feedback recently, had good, they had good, had good performance reviews recently. So basically, these companies were hiding layoffs to avoid you know, panic among the shareholders by saying that they were being fired for other reasons. That was one thing that happened in the book. The other thing that... We were talking about metrics earlier. So the, the big metric that the book focuses on is how when Wall Street began chasing or began following a, a metric known as uh, earnings per share. So earnings per share is you take a company's earnings and divide it by the number of shares that, that the company has. So higher earnings per share is better than lower earnings per share. So you want to have, you want to, you want to meet the Wall Street predictions for your earnings per share every quarter. And it was to the point where, you know, they would give this price down to like the penny. And if companies were, were missing about like a, a couple of cents, their stock would fall. So, I mean, it became this, this bonanza of chasing this number. And again, it's short term. Every quarter is not that, not that long. As the price to earnings ratio, is it the same metric, the PD? Price to earnings ratio is a, a ratio between the stock price and the earnings of the company. Yeah. This, this, would be, <clears throat> this would be the price of uh, the, the, the earnings of the company divided by the number of shares, by the number of shares. So, so yeah, so, so they, they were chasing this number. Again, the metric, which was measuring something before, became the thing to chase. And now it became a, how can a company cheat the system to have a higher earnings per share? And so they engage in all sorts of you know, nonsense to, to chase that number. I want to give some examples of that. One way they did that was they would hire layoffs as performance-based firings. That was one way. The second thing is, and, and this book is full of examples of just bogus accounting that companies would do. So the, the, the term is accrual accounting. So accrual accounting is in, is in itself not bad. Accrual accounting is a way for a company to look at profits in the future and kind of count them now. So an, an example might be if you're a car company and you, this is the example that he gives in, in the book. If I sell you a car, you might be paying me for that car over a period of time with like a payment plan. So if I am a company and I give you a car, I have lost that asset of the car worth $30,000. And from you, I've only gotten the down payment. So like every time I sell a car, I'm losing money on my balance sheet. Well, not really, because you're going to be paid over time. So your companies are allowed to, to count that future money back towards themselves. And so there, there, there's ways of doing that within the accounting world. The problem is that companies became extremely aggressive with accrual accounting to the point where they were making bad sales in the present that were risky and then counting those profits today. So if I sell you a car, it's going to take you 10 years to pay me back. If you have a really good credit score, then maybe I'm okay counting all that money today. But if you have a lousy credit score, the odds of me making all that money back from you are much lower. And so you began to see people abusing this to count money now by taking risk in the future, which ties, of course, directly into anti-fragility. 
and fragility in general. Um, making risky things in the future, blowing it off, building up debt, building up risk, and then eventually the house of cards comes tumbling down. The last thing I wanted to do is talk about, uh, so this, this one's gonna be a little hard to explain and I won't claim to completely understand it, but basically what would happen is you would have companies that had high earnings per share they would buy other companies that had smaller earnings per share. And through really no improvement in management, through no improvement in business efficiency, but purely by like accounting on a spreadsheet, would be able to boost their earnings per share number, which would then impact their stock price. And so you would have these companies go around buying other companies, boosting their earnings per share, boosting their stock prices, but nothing had really happened. It was just pure accounting that was making companies look really valuable. And of course, you can only do that so often because eventually you're going to run out of companies to buy that have a lower earnings per share than you. And so those are just, again, I think maybe I gave three examples there of how chasing this metric, chasing quarterly profits, chasing quarterly earnings per share led companies to invent or partake in schemes that we're not helping the company, but we're helping the metric. And instead of the metric measuring something, the metric became the objective. And so this, this book, The Number, goes into detail about all of these different things that they were doing. It goes over a variety of companies that were doing it. But for the people who are listening to the episode, we're talking about metrics and like GPA, like does this conversation have large implications? Oh boy, does it. It has implications everywhere where we are a constantly, constantly, constantly moving into a world where people want to solve problems by doing a calculation and in that process where they want to simplify things and in that process you create an incentive to chase these metrics that stop measuring what you want them to measure and become the goal in and of themselves so end so of quote no, i'm kidding i'm kidding yeah now how can these companies uh manage themselves better or operate better if they're not targeting metrics, what, what's the alternative? Yeah. And I, I think that's the heart of the matter is how, how do you incentivize good behavior? Um, let's go back to the Scott Adams proposal. I think obviously transparency is going to be huge. Um, you have to have transparency. I, I want to state that you know, as clearly as possible. I, I do think you need more transparency. The other thing that this book talks about quite a bit, and I, I don't know the current state of this or not, like I said, this book came out in like, early 2000s. So I don't know how much has changed between now and then. But one of the problems that the book discussed was a lack of standardization and accounting principles. And what that gave companies the flexibility to do was to, you know, play with the rules a little bit in order to come out with a better earnings per share or a better profit, whatever it may be. So one thing you have to have with a metric <laughs> is you're going to have a metric is it needs to be reproducible. I mean, that should be the first thing. You know, your metric ought to be the same no matter who's measuring it. That's like science 101. But the second thing that you have to have, and this is, I, I, I think, I don't know an easier way to say this. You have to truly have people commit themselves to a culture of professional responsibility. And I don't know an easy way to do that. I think it's literally every day reminding people that, hey, we're not going to lie to shareholders. We're not going to lie to customers. We're not going to lie to employees. 
the the problem is that the pressure to do so is really really high. I mean, again, for Upton Sinclair, if your job depends on you not getting, you know, you not turning in the bad guy, you know, I, I think, how would I say this? I'm not cynical about human nature. I think there are good parts of human nature. There are bad parts of human nature. One thing I, I wouldn't, how would I, how would I say this? I am a big believer in avoiding temptation. I, I, I really am. I, I think if, if for anybody, the, the way to live a moral life is to not put yourself in a position where you're having to make a constant decision between right and wrong. You really don't want to be in that position all the time because no one is perfect. And it's also the case where if you're around a lot of people who want the ship to keep on moving, they want the stock price to go up, they want things to work out for the better, are they going to be the ones to tell you to stop? Are they going to be the ones to raise objection? Again, possibly. And there and there definitely are almost certainly there are whistleblowers in all these cases. But do you want to be in a position where you where you're having to make that call? I would I would argue that it has just it, it is just as moral a life to purposefully avoid temptation as it is to put yourself in tempting positions and then to weigh them out, you know, as the moment arises. I would say that an equally good person just avoids the whole situation. I see. So labeling things right, right versus wrong. And how many, I'm trying to think of how many times I find myself asking that question. Like what, what is right versus what is wrong here? At least not from a, a, a moralistic point of view. I don't really base a lot of those decisions on more moralistic things. I think it's more, maybe pragmatic or just rational. Like, is this in line with my goals? Like what, that's kind of the filter that every decision goes through is like, is this in line with my long-term goals with what yeah. I want to have? So I, I don't know. Could you give some, some examples of like, just to help me understand like where, what that internal dialogue might look like or some examples of, of, of the role of temptation in the, yeah, moralistic right or wrong. Yeah, I think that, that that's a really good point. And I, I think luckily for most people, our, our goals, you know, can align with these decisions. It's just sometimes they don't. And when the stakes are really, really high, you want to make sure that they are. I would, to me, the easiest examples come down to, to honesty and to doing what you're, what you tell people you will do and following through with what you say. If somebody, somebody asks you, hey, on November 1st, can you deliver 20 pounds of steel and you say yes, but you know that you can't, but you did it to get a contract with that company to make some money. That's wrong. You lied to that person. Um, is there going to be a gray area? Are you, do you think that you might be able to do it and that you're pushing it? No doubt. And, and so it's, it's easy to find yourself in gray positions. If we could just start with the obvious cases. And I, I think, I think in, in, in many cases, you should always default to being more open, more transparent. You should raise doubts, raise concerns, and default to the side of sharing too much. That would be, I think, a decent place to, to start. As far as where that comes in your daily life, I mean, my favorite example is like probably drinking and driving, where if you're ever unsure if you're okay to drive, don't. That's the moral choice. If you're ever unsure, don't drive. If you think that you're tired, don't drive. 
you know, it's other gray areas. Sure. But if you're in a gray area, don't do it. And so I, I, I can imagine there are many cases where in real life things are hard, but at the same time, you know, people drink and drive, people do things that are, that are obviously bad. And so even if you could just start with the obvious cases and work towards the more critical ones, you know, I, I like, you know, I, I'm going to go ahead and quote Ayn Rand, I guess, because, you know, why not? It's almost Christmas time. But I, I, like, I like Ayn Rand. She has this funny thing where she's like, you know, people will, will criticize my philosophy because of like some bizarre scenario that, it, you know, would be hard to decide. And she's like, how many people are finding people drowning in a lake? Nobody. Like, that, that isn't your life. Like, yeah. Well, you know, you can always imagine a difficult case. Like, you know, if you're on an airplane and like, what should you do? Or like, you know, the case about lying and like, would you lie to save a Nazi? Or, not to say Nazi. Would you lie to save a Jew that actually coming for the Jews? It, okay, sure. That happened. But how many people are in that position today? Nobody. You know, it's like, you can always find a difficult case, but luckily for most of our lives, we're, we, we aren't, saving people drowning in a lake and deciding should I risk my life for someone so that that isn't our struggle you know our struggle is hey um should I speed because I'm running late this morning to work no you shouldn't speed speeding is dangerous you know I had a drink you know an hour ago and I feel a little buzzy should I go ahead and drive no shouldn't drive you know it's it those cases are abundant and while there are definitely other issues that are that are hard morally, a lot of them aren't. And I, I think that we're talking about a culture of individual responsibility. Let's start with the easy ones. And then as the more complicated ones come our way, we can, we can handle them then. But let's start with the obvious ones, with the easy ones, and focus on those first and then move on to other ones. Yeah. And like you said, it's not always, some of those examples aren't necessarily relevant to to our daily lives. Yeah, right. If anybody is like struggling between, you know, if you have a guy drowning in a lake, do you have to save their life? Uh, you know, that's you a tough to, spot. I've never seen that myself. Down. So move the train last minute between two tracks. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, cause I, cause I, you know, everybody's worked as a train operator before and everybody has seen people tied to tracks. I mean, obviously this is worth more discussion. It's like, give me a break. You know, that, that isn't life. That is a, that is a scenario which is interesting. I mean, it's worth exploring, but at the same time, does that mean that we don't know that it's wrong to lie? No, <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that at all. Well, I, I want to touch on this. I want to say that, and this is kind of just real life coming into me as I'm saying it, but I through the, a lot of these examples. I'm not sure if I consider the right versus wrong argument. So, for example, looking at the first one you said about overcommitting a date to a, a contractor or something, or maybe just a broader example of overcommitting something at work, mm -hmm. like you'll have something by this date. Right. I don't see it as like, well, I said I, got, I did it by this date, so I got to do it because I got to be true to myself. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that, but the bigger reason for me uh, sticking to that date is because it has a lot of advantages for me, right? Yeah. Like it's beneficial to me that, you know, especially if it's like your boss, that your boss thinks you're accountable because they're controlling how much money you get. They're controlling your vacation. They're controlling a large aspect of your life. Right. So it just pragmatically makes sense to, to, to 
for your to keep a good reputation like that. So that's that's where I drive a lot of my motivation for getting things done on time. Uh, maybe another example is uh, for that DUI thing you gave. Yeah. Uh, that would be a situation where it's like there's nothing in, in, intuitively in my brain working that's saying. I'm not capable enough to drive. Like I'm putting other people's lives at risk. Like that that never crosses my brain. Like intellectually, like I can state those words and I can say that, but in terms of an intuitive response, I never get that. I think, I think I, my abilities go up with alcohol to a certain degree and then they quickly go down. But, uh, you know, the question, when the question does come up, I, I have, I, I have a strict policy where I never drink and drive. Uh, because the risks are just too high. Like yeah. the odds of getting caught are reasonably high. Um, and the odds of something negative happening that will impact my future goals is, it's just not worth it. Right. It's like, a, am not lo- comparing it to like some board of moral views and saying like, okay, what do I do here? It's like, mm-hmm. what, what helps me long-term what helps my life long-term the best in, in that scenario. Um, but, and I think that I, I liked what you said about Ayn Rand. I think that was a nice tie in with the, what you were saying about individual responsibility earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really good, but yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think you make a great point. And what, and what I would say is, you know, the key to having a happy life is where your own values align with the moral path. And so what you're describing is a situation where I want to have long-term happiness. My long-term happiness depends on me being honest. That's the perfect position to be. And again, as somebody who cares more about outcome than, than intent to a point, again, there are obvious examples, but I think generally I care more about outcome than, than intent. If someone told me, you know, I never once cheated in, in college because I want to learn that because I wanted to make more money. I'd say, bravo. I, I don't care. That's, that's perfect. You know, the, the behavior matters more to me than the reason behind it. Again, to, to a point, I don't, people are going to write and say, what about this example with the, it's like, I, sure. Yeah. But usually I care more about outcome than intent. And so what I would say that really what you're describing is I think what the, the highest calling of a person, which is to take your desires and accomplish them in a way that lines up with a good moral framework. And then again, you're, you're coming back to my point earlier about just avoid the temptation. I mean, I would much rather somebody tell me my long-term financial well-being depends on me telling the truth. Good. That's a good place to be. Now I'm someone saying my long-term financial plan depends on me telling a lie. Now that's where you don't want to be. So as long as, as, as you are, which it sounds like you are doing, if you're aligning your life in a way that your pursuit of happiness is also pursuing moral outcomes, then that's... In, in my in my view, that's the perfect life, basically, because you you have now taken your own interests, which which matter. It matters. Your interests matter to you, as they should, and you're accomplishing your interests by treating other people in a morally sound way. That mm-hmm. to me, that's that that that's a perfect harmony for how somebody should live their life. So I I not only do I not critique what you're saying, I I applaud it, and would would hope that our listeners find a way to do that as well. Yeah. And outcome versus intent and judging people on outcome versus intent. Uh, yeah, you really only, there's only one reasonable 
for you to judge between those two. And I, that is outcome because yeah. you'll never know intent. It's a mind reading. I mean, unless like in Purdue where we have their internal documentation describing what they were doing and everything else, but, but usually we're not going to court for our intent. So usually I agree with you. Right. You're right. It, outcome matters much more. But intent, like you said, it's unknowable, but it's also uncontrollable. I can't right. control my intent. Like it, there's nothing, there's no knobs to turn there. It's just, it is what it is. And I don't know if that's a fair thing to, well, I don't know. That's where it gets tricky. Like, can you judge someone based on their intents? Yeah, I, I, I would say, again, are there obvious cases where that where you probably could? Sure, murder versus manslaughter, et cetera. But generally, if somebody studies hard for a test and does well on the test, do I care if they did it because they wanted to seek revenge on their nemesis in the class or because they wanted to become a famous, you know, whatever? I, I don't care. I doubt that you care. I care that they're learning the material. So it, again, it, it's, it's, it, if we put aside the silly pornographic examples of where intent really matters. Yeah. Yes. It, murder is different than manslaughter. Everybody understands that. Everybody agrees with that. Put that aside. We're not murderers usually. Okay. In almost every other circumstance, what do we really care about? I, we care about outcome. We care about what people do, their behavior, their actions. Again, we live in a physical universe. I care much more about what you are putting into motion than the reason behind it. That's right. We care about outcome and we care about metrics. Exactly right. Exactly. Make sure that you're blindly following all metrics at all times and uh, we should all be good to go. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Did you have any more, any more points in there? I, I did not. I for our, for our listeners who were waiting to hear more about the number, you know, and I and I, again I, I say I, I have not done this book justice. I mean, it is it is chocker block full of examples of these things that nobody should be doing in business. But of course, it did happen, and they happened because of an obsession with meaning Wall Street demands with an interest in making money and putting money over principles. Okay, that is why it happened. That happened in Purdue as well. And so, you know, what is the consequence of people turning a blind eye to bad behavior? Well, uh, a lot of suffering. That's, that's the end result. And so all of us, again, in our, in our sphere of influence, all of us have a responsibility for being individually responsible for our behavior. And within that sphere, uh, calling out people when they're behaving poorly um, as well. Those are, those are my main takeaways. And, uh, you know, I, I did want to just, you know, briefly touch back on, on what Joe was talking about earlier and uh, for, for his contribution. Um, that we, we certainly do hope that, uh, that she changes her mind, that she does come back on the podcast. We would love to hear her, her piece when it is finished. And um, we will leave that invitation open. But, uh, Joe, if you don't have anything else, we'll go ahead and close out this episode. I do have, I do have one thing to say. Perfect. Thank you. Great radio. Thank you. No, I'm kidding. Ooh, don't, don't offer the I know. What was I thinking? I, again, my, my intent. What was I thinking? Uh, so from a few episodes back, and uh, a listener did ask us, you were discussing uh, your sister's moving company and how yes. the company dropped a bunch of boxes and damaged a bunch of furniture. 100% failure. 100%. <laughs> our, our listeners want to know what the moving company is, what they were, so that they can yeah. Do you, do you, can you provide any details on that? Uh, I, I do not know right now. I would have to call and, and find out. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was thinking, you can go look at my dad's name and see who he wrote a review for because he gave them a five star when they were leaving their house. Of course, <laughs> you always, you always review after the fact. Okay. Um, Hopefully you could redact that. Yes. Yes. No, that was, 
that was horrendous. That was horrendous. I, am I exaggerating for effect? A little bit. I mean, did they break everything? No, but they damn sure tried their hardest. I mean, it, again, like I said, they, they, I, I don't know what they are called. They got to be called the wood chipper. I don't know what else I would call them. Honestly, I don't. Okay, well, maybe on a future episode we can. Yes. Bring that and, uh, yeah, maybe maybe we'll we'll, we'll bring them on. <laughs> we'll bring we'll we'll bring them on and, uh, and give them a chance to uh, to uh, defend themselves. Let's call them up and read them the Yelp review that. We <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, anything else from our from our listeners? Again, I want to remind people. You know, Twitter, uh, our website, YouTube, Joe's Instagram, Joe's Twitter. Follow us, engage with us. Um, we're always happy to hear feedback. We're always happy to see people on the website, views, et cetera. So reach out to us, interact with us, and we'll get back to you. Was that the only request from the listeners that wanted a little bit of dirt on the moving company? Was that the last yeah, one? They, they want to know. Okay. Well, very good. Well, that, we, we will say that for another time. But unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, that brings episode number 11 to a close. We hope that you had a good time today. A lot of interesting topics got brought up. A lot of good variety in the show. Um, as I said, do follow us on our platforms. Do make sure that you're checking uh, for new content uh, weekly. We do post stuff on our website along with other platforms as well. But we'll go ahead and close out episode number 11. Thank you for joining us. I am Jimmy Hackett, of Stanford, signing off, saying ciao, and we will see you next time. <laughs>